Hey, Ahmed. So welcome to Tectonic. This podcast is primarily about uh, everything related to digital and all of the ways that technology can improve our lives. So first of all, welcome. I'm really excited to talk about you know the, the things that you work on, behavioral change and uh, behavioral change consulting. So why don't you start us off with a brief introduction and how you got into this line of work, what you're passionate about and what it is exactly. So I've been in this, I've been an independent consultant for about 10 years. Prior to that, I worked primarily in banks for about 15 years. Um, started as a developer in the late 90s, when I was actually still a teenager, and uh, worked as a developer, climbed the corporate ladder, um, moved different locations, worked in New York for a bit, worked in London for uh, a bit, started delivering large programs. And around 2005, six. The bank I was with at the time started realizing that the large technology deliveries weren't really delivering. Lots of money was being spent, lots of effort was being spent, lots of consultancy dollars were being spent, and ultimately there wasn't much success. And so they started looking at something at that time wasn't that popular as is now, which was agile. Like what are agile ways of delivering products? And that's the first I started working in this area and uh, just f fell in love with the idea of attempting to change behavior at mass, you know, of an organization and sometimes an exercise in futility, but still it became something I'm really passionate about because that's all this is ultimately at the abstract level is changing behavior uh, and change. Uh, and if you want to even be more abstract, changing culture. So when you say they were adopting software, what exactly was the issue or challenge they were facing? Yeah, if you think about a large institution, they decide there's a problem. I, I, there's one of two things that drive large, large capital investments. Either there's a problem, a burning platform, or there's an, a huge opportunity. And so what ends up happening is once one of the two are identified, so we need to get off a burning platform or we need to do, you know, we need to compete with X or we have an opportunity to enter Y markets, that kind of thing. Then money's poured into it. And back then, if you remember, the banks were flush with cash. So lots of money would be poured into, into these large product development uh, efforts. And so the standard playbook at the time, early 2000s, was what came later to becoming known as Waterfall, which is... You do a lot of upfront, you know, you do an initial business case, you get the money, you do upfront requirements uh, can take anywhere from, you know, three to six months. You do architecture and design, and then you hand it over to either an external development shop or an internal development capability. And then they start doing stuff, start building stuff for about two years and then come two, three years later with the normal delays, that thing that was delivered is not the thing that either solve the problem, met the problem, because that's the nature of, that's the nature of digital products. You know, you think you want A and then you deliver it to the market and the market says, no, that's not what we want. Now imagine if that time horizon is three years, four years. And so even when you succeed, you failed. And so got into agile ways of working, which is effectively, you know, to oversimplify allowing product people and business people to change their mind very quickly to re respond, to adapt to, uh, you know, 
the market, external factors, internal factors, that kind of thing. So the work that you do, is it primarily in terms of mentoring and coaching on the agile process or because when you say behavior, I'm thinking beyond the development phase um, or maybe it's in tangent or, or uh, parallel to it. Agile ways of working are a part of what I do. Uh, it's a set of behavioral patterns that impact business and technology. But what I do is transcends that, you know, it transcends just agile ways of working. Um, so it really depends on the domain I'm in, the problem I'm looking to solve. But again, to oversimplify, what I do is change the behavior of an organization. Agile generally is a specific domain set where, uh, or a specific domain where you're changing how developers behave, how product people behave, and in some cases, even introducing roles such as product people. So can you give us an example? Like, can you take us through a scenario and it can be hypothetical or real. It depends on what you're allowed to speak about. But for example, a situation where you went in, there was a lot of cultural issues that was preventing certain type of growth. And then, you know, what exactly you and your team do that actually helped kind of uh, bridge that gap? Okay. So a, a, a standard pattern or example that I've seen many times is let's say, for example, you take even the idea of a team, just the idea of a team. You ask anyone, are you a part of a team? And they'll say, yes, I'm part of a team. That's okay. So tell me about the team. They'll tell you who they work for. So say, I work for Amen. So they'll identify their team based on the person they work for. That does not make a team. That just means a collection of people have a shared identity, and that shared identity comes from the fact that they work from Amen. But imagine if you find a, if you go to any you know, soccer team or any team, just take any team, you say, uh, tell me about your team. They're not going to say, well, we work for X. So that's very normal. That's, that's a standard way in which teams are organized. And I would argue that they're not teams. They're just a collection of people working for someone. It's like a hub and spoke, you know. And what are the consequences of that framework or that mental perspective? You know, in, in some cases, very good. In some cases, uh, it, it's appropriate. So I'm not going to say anything is good or bad. It just depends on the context. But in the context, context, for example, of a group of highly motivated people that have an outcome, I just think about four or five or six people in a garage or looking to deliver a product, actually having a manager is a anti-pattern. You know, it's, it will be a bottleneck. It will be an information bottleneck. And so one of the standard practices that have become really popularized in the past 10 years is the idea of self-managing or self-governing teams or even self-designing teams. And so if you imagine an organization where largely the organization desi organizational design consists of people being managed, strongly managed by a manager, and all of a sudden you want to introduce this notion of self-organizing team you know or you can imagine the amount of behavior changes required from being heavily managed to self-managed from being told as something as simple as you're used to going to um used to going to your manager and saying hey i'm going to take monday off i'm not feeling well 
to now telling your co your teammates, I'm taking Monday off. So there is, a, even in that little tiny micro example, there is so many behavior changes that's required. And now that's on the team side, things you have to learn and unlearn. Now the manager who used to on Monday be successful by telling people what to do on Tuesday is now unsuccessful for being telling people what to do. So there is a myriad of behavior changes required for the manager and the team, those who are formerly managed and those who are, who are now managing. And so that's just one of many, many different examples. Uh, so what's the most common pushback you get when trying to change these behaviors? So, you know, from my experience, management doesn't like to step down, obviously, for obvious reasons. But um, do they change? Does the role itself change? Does the responsibilities change? Do they become just part of the team as opposed to having a hierarchy? How do you, how do you see that play out? Well, the, f the first question is where do you get pushback? And you get pushback from almost everyone at every level. It's not only the managers who have lost power. You get pushback from even the developers themselves. I remember a story of um, uh, going to Jersey City on you know, meeting a client. And there was a group of people in Jersey City who were mainframe developers for, for decades. And we were installing a new organizational design that will really give power to the people. You know, it will put the locus of power into the these CICS developers, these mainframe developers, as opposed to management leadership. And uh, one gentleman, he's like, "Look, I'm going to go out on a smoking break. Come, come out with me, son." You know, I was like, "Okay, dad." And he took me out, and he said, "Look, I don't want what you're selling. I want to come in at 7 a.m., be told what to do." and leave at three. And so pushback doesn't always have to come from leadership or management. It can many times come from everyone because you know, you're the old age old adage, everyone wants change, but no one wants to change, you know? And so, uh, so that's the first part of your question. Right. Cause empowerment comes with responsibility and decision-making ability and exactly. things like that. And, and assumed risk. You know, one of the things that one of the one of the things a manager does for people is they de-risk by taking the accountability onto themselves, or or a project manager. If you're from the PMI world, they're called the single ringable neck. They are a clearinghouse for lots of accountability, and so when you remove these roles, then the accountability falls on people who were not accountable before, and that's very can be very uncomfortable. So, are you? So is the objective for modifying the organizational process and the culture in order to essentially work with the agile process? Or is the culture kind of something that is outside of, it doesn't matter necessarily whether it's agile or not? Because I, the way you've defined the structure, it sounds like it's specific to agile. And if it was a different structure, then you would have to change culture in a different way, right? Well, it's, I mean, agile is just an industry buzzword that almost become meaningless. It's ultimately, it starts, as you said, you know, what's the problem the organization is looking to solve? An organization putting an agile process in place is as useful as somebody starting keto or carnivore. You know, it's sounds interesting. People talk about it a lot. You know, they get into it, but what's the goal? You know, is your goal to 
are you optimizing for you know cognitive health weight loss are you yeah are you optimizing for mental acuity are you opt are you a sumo wrestler are you a triathlete and so a lot of times people think about frameworks before thinking about what they're optimizing for what the problem is and so agile itself is just a a collection of values and principles under which there's a lot of methodologies that seem to like seek to actualize those those principles and uh, values like scrum uh kanban less and a bunch of others but they're just organizational diets right that makes sense so then can you provide you know either a case study or high level kpis um, that illustrate your strategy like how do you know you're successful when a when an organization brings you in and you have a client now and they say you know Ahmed, i have all these issues with our culture people are not cooperating how do you measure success um in your experience yeah i mean it's it's a really difficult question to answer and one that any consultant thinks about how do you measure success it's not as simple as you know measuring success in a marathon is easy you know do you did you finish the marathon and under the time you wanted to finish a lot there's a qualitative and quantitative aspect to you know what i do and but ultimately like any product like i'm selling a product which is myself and any consultant selling their product ultimately the measure of success is the person or organization buying the product happy with the product now that's really now that's my success are they happy with the product, right? And then I have some other KPIs. Are they happy with what I've done, you know? But then I, when I engage with a client, I, I ask them, what problem are you looking to solve? And how can you quantifiably tell, like, show me that problem, right? And so, for example, if, they're, if they feel that their problem is lack of delivery, do they have any data to demonstrate, really demonstrate that they're not delivering? And, or if it's quality, do they have data to demonstrate that they have lack of quality? They're, they're, then we can benchmark it at some point in the future. So if we agree success looks like lead time is going down from six months to three months, do we have the mechanisms and the benchmarks to check in the future? But a lot of times when you ask, especially in large organizations they'll say they'll give you the symptom of the problem so they'll tell you well our problem is our developers are not efficient enough or our quality is not high enough and when you through you know some sort of socratic questioning you can find out really what the problem is and sometimes the problem is the internal business are just not happy with the technology delivery and so the, the measure comes in after a year you can ask them, are you happy? It can sometimes be that simple. That makes sense. So what is the, what is the typical, I guess, uh, timeline for working with a client on behavioral change? Uh, and do you work like at a department level? Uh, how do you kind of organize the way you, you go about it? it? It depends on the client. There is, you know, m most of the clients I work with are either very very small you know you know startups or the size of nation states you know they're very very big and so in both cases it generally starts with 
you know, the problem I'm trying to solve, but most likely I'm working with a specific division. And w the approach I generally like to take is I don't try to change the entire division or organization I'm working with. You know, I try to take a specific product group and work with them. Establish, like we talked about before, what does success look like? So almost like a proof of concept? Almost like a proof. Because what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to introduce a positive virus into the organization. You're trying to create a viral reaction. I like that. <laughs> in such a way that it infects the rest of the organization positively. You want to, because, you know, like a stable system does not want to change. If you look into systems thinking or any of these, you know, the works of Peter Senge or Russ Acall, these are stable systems. They do not want to change despite what they say, despite what the leadership says. And so when you want to, when you want to change an organization, there's a rules, rule in systems thinking, Peter, in, you know, the fifth discipline says the organization, the pushback to change is commensurate to the amount of change we introduce. So if you're going to introduce like a, a Jobsian level of change, like he did when the organization uh, was six months away from bankruptcy, A, you better have a serious, you know, real purpose and a leader that can handle the blowback from that much change. There's not that many Steve Jobs out there. So in, the, in their case, yes, they had an extreme sense of urgency. They were going to run out of cash. But then they also have Steve Jobs who decided to like cancel every product line Barring four. And so because those are not the circumstance I usually work in, I try to introduce change and into a small set of the organization such that that particular leader can handle the blowback. But then what happens when it's a successful change, the rest of the organization gets organizational FOMO. Like, oh, I, that looks really interesting. You know, what, I'll have some of that. Now, if you come heavy hand and try to change the entire organization, try to change the religion of the organization, then there'll be lots of pushback. And then not to get too religious, but like any, trying to introduce any religion into any place, you'll get the, always you get three things, the true believers, those who disbelieve to your face, and those who are hypocrites. These are whether, this, regardless of the religion, you get those three classes of people, right? And so... Same thing applied to introducing any large-scale change. So I prefer to start with a division, create success, create that positive momentum such that you introduce this positive, positive virus into the organization. Um, in terms of leadership, you know, obviously there's a ton of things changing in the industry. Uh, AI is one of those things that is disrupting a lot of, um, a lot of work and processing processes in the workplace, removing manual labor, how do you see leadership evolving um, over time, especially like the way that you see self-organizing teams? There still has to be some sort of leadership above those teams, I'm assuming. Um, of course. How, does, how do you feel like that looks like in, in the future or how is it evolving today? With regards to technology or with regards to new ways of working? Um, both. I, I think they're kind of married sometimes, but maybe in your experience, they kind of uh, run separately. Well, you have to put yourself in, you have to empathize. To do this kind of work, you have to empathize with every level. And 
senior, I'm talking about senior leaders, not just managers of teams, hear lots of noise. So imagine you're running an organization that's 100,000 people, a technology organization that's 100,000 people. That's like governing a state. You know, you have lots of drama and problems and COVID and this shutting down, all this kind of stuff there. And then you hear lots of noise. You know, Y2K, uh, if you remember that, you know, um, uh, NFTs, blockchain. Blockchain is going to change the world. Right, there's always a new kid on the block. Yeah, SOA, service-oriented or- architecture in the, in, the, in the early 2000s. You know, TQM. There's always something that's going to disrupt so eventually you gain a level of cynicism that, you know, because it, well, otherwise you can get whiplash. There's going to be a, a new disruptive technology sold by the internet every, you know. Now, the diff, of course, as you know, some of them do end up disrupting. We just really don't know which, you know. And so at NFTs, like everyone talked about NFTs or VR and you know Facebook is now meta and although they're giving away their goggles free from you know now apparently and now it's oh, a, yeah and now it's uh you know it, you know it, it is is these large language models and machine learning and you know is, is that genu- genuinely going to be a disruptive technology so the first thing is there's a lot of cynicism and I don't blame them. I don't blame them for being I would probably be the same way if I ran a 300,000 person org and every once in a while someone on LinkedIn screamed about how disruptive this technology is. Now having said that I've seen a couple of disrupt, genuinely disruptive technologies in my career which started in the 90s like the web and then the app economy in you know 2008 i feel like that really genuinely changed things and i think blockchain is interesting but still similar to vr not really right i think people are still finding use cases for it exactly it's, it's still finding use cases for blockchain all those tons of accelerators and things like that but ai i feel like there's something there you know, when I play with ChatGPT, I don't just play with it. I use it in what I do. You know, I feel like there's like this. This is the first real killer app for artificial intelligence, which has been around as an idea since my career started. Mm-hmm. You know, and so now back to your question, how that's going to impact leaders. I think probably the way they're thinking, at least what they're telling me is how is it impacting their workforce? So, for example, you have um, Copilot, which developers seemingly love, and you have ChatGPT where you can give it a prompt and it can produce complex code for you. Of course, it's not perfect, and I'll never argue it's perfect, but it's, I know develop- Saving significant time. It's saving significant time. And so they're thinking a lot of times, what does that mean? for the bottom line because you know publicly traded companies people forget there is there are many times optimized but they'll never say that for the stock price doing this you know quarter after quarter and either you can have a significant new product that's just 
printing money like like Google AdSense did for years, but eventually not so much. Although it's still a cash cow, like banks were printing money for years. Well, you know, but their margin, <laughs> their, <laughs> that's a different conversation, but their margins were so high. They didn't have to worry that much about efficiencies. Eventually your margins get squeezed, just like it's happening now with Google and AdSense. It's still making a lot of money, but then where do you get the, where do you get the growth? You get the growth by cutting cost. And so I, I think many senior leaders, when they hear about AI and you know, and uh, they're thinking, okay, what what efficiencies can be gained from our developers using something like that? Mm. Like, is is it almost like you know some sort of cyborg developer now, where they can, you know, one developer can do what ten did before? So yeah. it's almost like the way development, and I don't even know what the what the consequences of this was. If if you remember the early two thousands, all about offshoring. And so, okay, so an onshore developer might cost you 200000 or back then 160 or something like that, but you can get four of them as if they were like replaceable widgets, you know, ditch diggers, as right, some right. would call them. Um, and they'll say, okay, so we, we need to move to offshore. Now, are, are they thinking in much of the same way, which is one developer plus, let's give them all of the, you know, you know, let's train them up on how to prompt these things. That way we can, we can one developer can equal four. And so they're probably, if I know, in the back of their mind, thinking, what, what are the efficiency be, efficiencies to be gained, you know, that ultimately drive, like, allow a developer to deliver the same amount of value with less developers. So, Ahmed, we briefly touched on uh, emerging technologies such as AI, NFTs, blockchain, VR, and how leaders are understandably you know, skeptical and they have to make the right decision so that they're not making massive disruption for no reason. Um, I wanted to touch on, I want to take a step back and touch on emotional intelligence in terms of behavioral change, because I think a lot of managers talk about how a lot of what they do is not simply quantitative. A lot of it has to do with, you know, there's a joke about how managers need to be therapists as well. So, um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and, and how, uh, empathy and emotional intelligence kind of factors into creating a wide scale change. Yeah. I mean, look, as I touched earlier on you, even you have to be empathetic with a senior leader and, and they're generally people you're not very empathetic with, you know, because of the senior leaders, the ones with the big bonuses. And, and if you're going to be empathetic with them, you know, it behooves you. You have to be empathetic with almost every rung. Like for example, and this new current wave to self-managing teams and basically bringing the power back into the teams, I have a massive amount of empathy to managers, you know, the managers of those, what were called human resources. And if you think about it, you used to be rewarded for years by running quote a tight ship and all these sort of military metaphors that were cool. And now, if you're a senior QA leader with you know hundreds of quality assurance people in, in India and in the U.S. and Poland, and all of a sudden these these a becoming a manager is uncool, and the idea of offshore testing is uncool. And so, what do you do? I mean, I have lots of empathy. I mean, so there are people who say, 
you know, fashion themselves like Elon or Sergey. And, you know, in the early 2000s, Sergey and Larry did something called the, the uh, Disorg, where they said, you know, we, we've hired the best engineers. Why do we need to have managers? So they just fired them all. And they called it a Disorg. And that type of thinking, that engineering way of thinking is still prevalent until today. Of course, they were wrong and they rehired managers uh, about a year later. But this lack of empathy that leads people to say, okay, so now teams are self-managing. We've now in instituted something that looks like Scrum. So therefore, we can fire managers. And, and you know what? Facebook has done it. And uh, they've fired X percent. It's such a naive way of th thinking about things, both naive and lacks empathy. Naive in that there is a ton of information inside these managers' head on how the system works itself, how they, or how they, or how they get stuff done in this organizational system. Um, but then there's a genuine lack of empathy or looking at people as humans. And one thing, you know, empathy like safety, like all these other buzzwords have are used so much to the point of them losing all real effective meaning. And so I, I'm reminded when I think about empathy is something Dale Carnegie, like basically the thesis of his book, his 100-year book, you know, it's, it's almost a, you know 100 year old now, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Of course, there's not, nothing in it. It's, it's fantastic. But what, what, what's his thesis? People are motivated by the need to feel important. You know, that's... And... Sometimes people act in ways during organizational changes that make people feel unimportant. And by doing so, like what's the cost of doing that? What's the cost of a quote-unquote lack of empathy is you've weaponized them against you. And if we circle back to the conversation I had before, you know, the three types of personas, you know, the true believers, the true disbelievers, and the hypocrites, you know, you weaponize a lot of people and it's the silent a, you know, the silent sort of people who will, will, you know, commonly called, you know, the grin effers, you know, like, oh, yeah, we love this idea. We love what you're saying. But in the back, you know, are incredibly toxic, right? It's easy to just say, I, I even empathize with them because many times leadership have created them by basically put them into some sort of purgatory, you know, they put them into purgatory, organizational purgatory, and they, they took... They provide the, a safe space for them. Exactly. They didn't... They, but more more than a safe space, like they didn't give them a sense of purpose. And so, if, imagine you 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 your purpose was to tell fifteen people what to do, and now those fifteen people are telling each other what to do. And this person is a hard worker, wants to earn. You've took you've taken away a sense of purpose, without replacing with another sense of purpose. Then, then it's you're confused when you that that class of people are weaponized against the change. You you know you've done that. You know it's like Russ Acoff said, every dysfunction can be mapped back to a management decision. Whereas it's much easier to blame the teams, the individual, the manager. So how do you resolve all of this? Where do you start? And you know how do you know who where the problem might be? I mean, obviously you ask a lot of questions and. You do one-on-one -on -one interviews with these individual resources and try to understand where the problems are. But how do you actually tackle them? It's, it's such a big question. Uh, you know, 
let me try to tackle it. But uh, the generally where the problems are in an organization is generally fa- will be solved somewhere else in the organization. This is what Russ Aikoff calls fundamental attribution error. So, for example, you know, a common analogy I use is lower back pain. So you you suffer from lower back pain. The cause is generally somewhere else. Tight hip flexors, most likely, from sitting down all day. So the solution is not to buy a Theragun and just point it at your lower back and you know and, and just saw your lower back with the Theragun. It's probably reduce the inflammation, you know, and yoga and stretch your hip flexors. Same thing with the organization. When there is an acute problem, it's generally almost always solved somewhere else in the organization. The trick is finding the equivalent to the hip flexor. You know, sometimes, like for example, I was in a client recently and they had asked me to help improve developer productivity which is always a symptom to me. I, you know, I say, okay, but that's almost like the trigger for where I begin. And you, you dig deep into developer productivity. And in this case, it had nothing to do with developer productivity. It had to do with the fact that there was no single point of prioritization. No one was prioritizing the work. So you, you imagine you have all of these stakeholders asking things and because you don't have a product owner or product manager that's saying, no, that's not priority, that's a priority, it was all falling into the lap of the development organization. And they were not senior enough to say no to anything. So the solution would have been to just put someone to prioritize the work, understand their capacity and prioritize the work. Instead, they'll say, okay, how can we improve their productivity to not delivering fast enough? So your question in terms of how do you know where the problem is? I mean, you... You, you you should start by knowing wherever the symptom is, the, the solution is somewhere else. And then there are a myriad of ways to figuring out what the root cause and solution for that is. Now, that's one of your questions. The other thing is, where do you start in organizational change? Like I said before, you don't want to start, unless you're Steve Jobs and you're about to go out of business very, very quickly, or, or you're, and, and so even even Elon, Everyone loves to talk about Elon, right? And he did what he did in Twitter because he had no choice. He wasn't flush with cash. The, you know, the, he bought this thing for $42 billion and advertisers jumped and he was, he was going to lose the company. And so that's why, you know, one of the major, major reasons he fired, I don't know, what is it, 75%. And so... You know, unless you're one of those, you know, you have those two circumstances of like an extreme sense of urgency and a, and a, and a Musk or a Jobs that's willing to take the blowback, you, know, you, you start small within the organization. And second thing is you must change the organizational structure. You cannot leave the hierarchy as is. Those are, those are just two things to think about. Do you find that top down versus bottom up is the wrong way to think about it? Yes, absolutely. Because I think everyone needs to be on board, right? Yeah, there, there is no top down versus bottom up. It's it's both. Because you have top down which you need. You need senior leadership. You need senior leadership to provide you with, you know, purpose and urgency, and priority and 
and you want to ensure that they're there for a long enough time to get you through the J curve. But then you need bottom up and you get there through educating everyone, creating common language, uh, in some cases having to exit certain people after a certain period. And so you definitely need both, you know, bottom up and top down. Yeah. So I have uh, just one more question here. Um, and it talks about emerging technology again. So I always like to ask my guests, you know, what do you see the future of work? And I want it to be as, I want your predictions to be as wild as possible. Um, really get the juices flowing. So I'm, I'm curious to know, do, have you thought about, you know, what the future of work might look like? Um, you know, obviously with COVID, we are doing a lot more remote work and there's been a lot of experiments, successes and failures around that. Have you thought about kind of where, um, leadership is heading in terms of the future and how we work together how far into the future let's say 10 years if you want but if you have if you if you have a 20-year prediction with some interesting you know potential uh changes i'd love to hear uh, yeah 10 okay let's stick with 10 years i think in 10 years a lot of the industry will largely look the same uh and some of the industry will look radically different. Yeah, 10 years, you know, it's... I'm reminded, and maybe because I'm just getting older, most banks, I think banks are the perfect sort of example to illustrate what I'm trying to say. Most banks, and even most planes, are running on 40-year-old code. That's true. You know, they they talk about, you know, all these blockchain and this and level two and Ethereum and, you know, all, all, all this kind of stuff and blockchain for everything. And but still the Western world, you know, Western, actually the global banking is still running on Swift and right. running on mainframes and, you know, and, and still there despite all the attempts to, move some of the core banking and payments and i'm not saying some some of them have been migrated ibm and mainframes are still alive and kicking you know 40 50 years later i mean there's code in banks that are older than me which is crazy so in 10 years i think there's going to be a lot of the stuff still there mm -hmm. and a lot of the and there's going to be the, an entire world of maintaining these systems that will and so these, the maintenance of these systems will have organizational designs and paradigms similar to what exists today. Because sometimes putting something like that looks like Scrum or these product development methodologies on top of the maintenance of these decades-old systems is actually really bad. And so I think there's going to be a lot of the same. And I think there's going to be you know, similar to like the front office of a bank where it's like really bleeding edge, I think it's going to be really interesting. Like, especially in the development world, the coding world. I, 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 I wanted to write a script and a script that would have taken me. So I still code on the side because I think it's interesting. I was like, and it just occurred to me, let me ask ChatGPT to produce the script. I was like, there's no way, you know, there's no way it could actually write what I want to. 99% it didn't. And so like when you, it's almost the limitation is going to be in the future how well you can 
write these prompts. You know, it's and it's almost like the writers and the philosophers are the ones who are going to be the most effective. You know, and so yeah, I always talk about storytelling coming back to the forefront because I feel like humans natively, you know, we evolved to be storytellers and we kind of lost that art because we're in the mundane, you know, everyday tasks. But when we have technology, it allows us to kind of get back to the storytelling. That's exactly right. You know, and it's so it's it's kind of almost elevating the liberal arts because a lot. And of course, this is in the application, in the usage of these things, not not in the creation of them. I'm sure in the, you know, in OpenAI and Neuralink and all these places, you you have some like MIT PhDs are thinking about, you know, you know, drawing things beautiful mind style, you know, on on some glass windows. But like I'm talking about in the actual utilization of these things, I think development is, you know, it, it was a commoditized. You know, in the in, in the late nineties, early two thousands, as something like a commodity, and then like, no, no, this is wrong. This is a deep skill. You know, we need to. This, the offshore movement didn't work, and these are real craftspeople. But now I'm thinking, maybe the opposite now. Yeah, maybe it is a commodity again, and and and, and instead of being commoditized by low cost labor in in, in offshore locations, being it's being commoditized by. You know, by language models that have analyzed every bit of code on GitHub. Right. I feel like, yeah, the, the, the gap between an idea and actually delivering value is the execution. And I think that AI and technology really, I mean, it makes the execution part almost trivial. I mean, in 10 years, I imagine um, anyone who doesn't even know how to code can write an app just by saying, okay, this is what I want. And if they can conceive of it and they can find a market for it, then they're in business. And that's extremely powerful. It's extremely powerful. And it's going to be extremely noisy because I mean, anyone who can yeah. conceive of a podcast can create a podcast now, you right. know, and the barrier True. to entry is so low. And so there are, I think the same thing is going to exist, you know, because mm -hmm. like, I remember when, when I first started developing, like, you'd have to buy hosting space and you know it was just the barrier to entry was yeah you'd have to pull a thousand levers before you can see hello world <laughs> yeah and now and now you just exactly it's it's really really so i i think you know it's going to be a lot of the same and some really incredible you know that some really incredible use cases that i i can't uh fully imagine like, it's you know are, are the developers going to be almost like i'm talking about the common developers in the firm are they going to be go by almost like kodak film like almost unnecessary because there used to be this dream that a business person can write some business requirements and all auto generate the code and there was some pocs like you know ibm had a job you know and then all of a sudden, auto-generate the code, but it never worked. But I believe in the next couple of years, it's going to work. Where forget even ChatGPT, you'll be able to like almost because ChatGPT is natural language. So what's the next evolution? They just tell the thing, "Hey, do this thing for me." Right. And so, uh, like a, a trader in the front office, you know, what, what they have, 
the traders in the front office at Bank are very, very intelligent people. And they, and they have these models and they'll go to their developers generally sitting on the desk, right? And they'll say, hey, I have this idea for a model. Execute, do this for me so I can test the model. And they'll go, they'll do some things, they'll change the object, they'll do this and they'll compile and whatever. And they'll, maybe a week later, the trader will, will test the model against the market. I can foresee all of that going away. Yeah, the momentum would be completely different. The momentum and the speed will be completely different. Yeah. It's just really, really, really interesting. And, and of course, depending on how down the rabbit hole, what are the implications to, forget just software development, what are the implications to uh, lawyers to like... All knowledge-based work, right? All, all knowledge-based work, exactly. Management consultant, what we do. Yeah, this is a, a running joke with me is uh, I think that in 20 years, everyone's going to learn how to juggle because that's the only job that you can't automate. <laughs> I think, like I said, I think there's going to be a lot, like 80% will be the same. And then 20% will be like really, really different. You know? Yeah. I said in 10 years, I don't know what 50 years will look like. I don't want, I don't even want to think about 50 years. Yeah. But like uh, the, yeah, and all the singularity stuff, I was just, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, over my head and, and part of me doesn't believe in it anyway, but. Um, right. Well, I appreciate the insight. I think uh, we're aligned on what the future might hold. I'm curious to see how that will affect behavior in the workplace and obviously how people work with each other with all these new tools and all this new surveillance. Um, but uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find you if they want to hear more? So I have a website, which is, you know, my blog is, you know, my first name and last name.com, ahmedfahmi.com. And my company is zone2consulting.com. It's zone the number two consulting.com. Great. Well, thank you so much again. And hopefully we can talk to you again in uh, 10 years and see how things have changed and how, you, <laughs> how robots have taken over. My pleasure.